listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, September the 10th, in the year of our Lord 2018. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and as is our custom on Mondays, we like to look at at least one of the lessons for the following Sunday, which is the 17th Sunday after Pentecost. The lesson we're going to be looking at is Isaiah chapter 50. I just want to make a couple of uh, house duties here. We've uh, begun a new process on Wednesday's Long Gospel, where it is now a Bible study, and we're organizing and structuring it in such a way that if you're in a congregation and would like to have a Bible study where people gather at the church at 9.30 in the morning, Central Time, then that's what you can hear off your computer. Put a couple of speakers on it. And I'll be doing a Bible study from 9.30 to 10, and then from 10 to 10.30, the people can talk about what they heard me say. I'll be giving various other Bible verses that you can look up during the last part of the half hour. And we're trying to get a number of congregations that will be involved with a long gospel Bible study on Wednesdays at 9.30. If you have any questions, email me at Law and Gospel at lawandgospel101.com. We'll still continue on Mondays with looking at a lesson for the following Sunday. On Tuesday with Mark Smith looking at a the hymn assigned for that Sunday. Thursdays, Rumination Thursday with Wes Reimnitz. And then Open Mic Friday we'll be looking at for people to call in with questions as they did last Friday. Well, in the promo, I mentioned the fact that you hardly ever see a representation of Jesus, a photo, artist, well, it's not a photo, but an artistic rendering of him where he does not have a beard. How do we know that Jesus had a beard? Well, there's a passage that talks about that. It's the reading from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 10. Now, the reason that is such a good passage is, remember that great Bible study Jesus had on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples where he went through the Old Testament, pointing out where he is found again and again? I believe that every passage of the Old Testament really connects to Jesus in some way. But some are more obvious than others. And this Isaiah chapter 50 is somewhat an obvious one. Isaiah is penning the following, beginning with verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Now, I, I could spend the whole program just talking about that sentence because it reminds me of a number of items. The Ethiopian eunuch was on the road when the Lord had Philip greet him, and the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from a passage in Isaiah about the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, 
and by his stripes we are healed. And the eunuch said to Philip, is this person the writer or is he writing about somebody else? And boy, did it give the opportunity for Philip to talk about Jesus. Because that's what that portion of Isaiah is talking about. Well, similarly here, this is really not Isaiah saying that the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, but he's really speaking about Jesus. Now, the Old Testament reading as well as the gospel reading, often have a similar theme. Uh, This time, James, the epistle, also has the theme because it talks about what the worst part of the body, and that is the tongue. Uh, Verse 6 of James 3, the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. And yet in Isaiah 50, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. So not only do different words have different meanings, but the word tongue can either be a positive thing, namely you have the tongue of those who are taught uh, the ability to teach others, or you have a tongue that says terrible things about other people breaking commandments all over the place. In this case, this is the positive use of the tongue. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Now, this is Jesus speaking. And if it is Jesus speaking, who's the Lord God? Because is he not God? It's obvious this is the Father. There's another passage where Jesus says, I have not come to say the things I want to say, but I am come to say the things of the Father. Now, this verse also has the purpose of every sermon and every Bible study. Uh, For example, I could have asked the question, when, when you go to church and hear a sermon in a Bible study, is not the purpose so that you get to know more about what the Bible says. And I doubt whether very many people will disagree with that. But this verse does. It's not that you shouldn't learn more about what the Bible says, but listen to the purpose of the tongue that is able to teach. Jesus says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. For some time now, I've said there's two purposes I have in every sermon. Number one, to say something that those in the pew have never heard before. And that would be an insight from the Bible. And there are thousands of them that are not obvious when you read the English. You, you really need to have a good background, not only of the 
Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic, but also of the culture of that day and the context in the rest of Scripture. Uh, For example, on Sunday, I was talking about how James says that we are saved not by faith alone, but by works. Now, if that does not disagree with Reformation teaching, I don't know what does. So you had to explain, how can Paul say, we're not saved by works, but through faith alone, and James says, no, we're saved by works. Well, they're answering different questions. Paul is answering the question by others or from others is, how am I saved? Paul says, you're not saved by doing any works. You're saved through faith, which is a belief in the promises of the gospel. You're saved. James is answering a different question. He's answering, what kind of faith saves? And the answer he's giving is, it's not the faith of the demons. Remember, he even says, even the demons believe and they shudder because they only have what we call historic faith. They, they believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe he rose from the dead. But that doesn't save anybody because that's historic faith and it is not saving faith. James makes the point that saving faith is not only trust in the promises of God, but you can tell, God can, that you have saving faith when he sees the works that come from that faith. So if you say you have faith and then see somebody who's hungry or in need of your help and you don't help him, what kind of faith is that? That's a dead faith. And so it's very important to understand that the works are not just good works, which even an atheist can do, but fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, motivated by love for Jesus Christ. So there was an apparent contradiction, but it was very comforting to realize that faith is something that saves when you trust the promises of the gospel and God sees the evidence of your faith. And that evidence, of course, is fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we use Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, uh, to make that very point. Well, that was something that a lot of people may not have realized, that distinction. But it also sustained with a word those who were weary. Or the way I like to say it, the second purpose of every sermon is to comfort the afflicted. The afflicted, that comes about because we think about our sin. We say, oh boy, how am I ever going to stop from sinning so I can go to heaven? Well, you're comforted by the fact that it's not necessary to stop from sinning because God declares you righteous while you are still sinning. Not on the basis of your improvement in your behavior, but rather through faith in the promises of the gospel. 
Christianity is the only one that teaches that. So we're not even out of verse 4. And we've now heard that Jesus has the tongue of those who are able to teach. And the purpose of teaching is to sustain with a word him who is weary. In other words, to comfort. I always end the sermon on a word of comfort, namely a gospel promise, because that's the purpose of every sermon. And we could talk a lot more about that, but we've got some more verses to get to. In verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear. And what does Jesus mean by that? Well, when your ear is open, you hear. But we're not just talking about an auditory sense where you hear the words. It means you understand. Like, for example, a parent may say to the child, I'm going to the garage. Do not go into the basement. Well, I'm gone. I'll be back in 10 minutes. So the parent goes over to the garage, and the child, being rebellious as he is, decides to go in the basement. The parent comes home, realizes the child is in the basement, and says, didn't you hear me? Now, he doesn't mean by hear whether you were aware of the words, but didn't you hear in the sense of obeying? So when it says the Lord God has opened my ear, Jesus therefore had his ear open to what God the Father wanted him to preach and to do. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. What does that mean? Jesus did not return to heaven without accomplishing the mission for which he was sent. And that begins in verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike. Remember, even Isaiah talks about that. He was whipped. And of course, if you take a look at the crucifixion, whipping was part of being crucified in order to die earlier on the cross. You could stay alive on the cross three or four days And so, just like when they put someone in the electric chair, they shave the top of his head in order that the electricity will be able to be used properly. So also in crucifixion, there were various things that were done. One of them included was the whipping that took place. I gave my back to those who strike. Now listen to the next one. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Now, how many times has somebody pulled on your hair on the top of your head? And boy, doesn't that hurt? Well, it appears that the Roman soldiers, in mocking Jesus, uh, not only dressed him in a robe, put a crown of thorns on his head, but pulled out his beard. That is, pulled on the hairs of his beard. This is the only place in the Bible where it talks about the beard of Jesus. And that's why every picture you see 
that's drawn about Jesus, the artistic rendering, he has a beard. And it wasn't more than just pulling out the beard or striking his back. Listen to the next one. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So the Roman soldiers were also spitting at Jesus. That's a way in a lot of cultures to spit towards someone to show your contempt for them. So here you find that Jesus was whipped. His beard was being pulled out. And he also was spit at. Verse 7 is very important. The same words as found in verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue, we find in verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Wow. Think about that. One would think that if someone is spitting at you and pulling out your hair and whipping you, isn't that disgrace? But God, in the person of Jesus Christ, he is not being disgraced. He is doing the work of God for your salvation. That's not something that is a disgrace. That is where he becomes a savior. And he says, therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, certainly, the people watching thought that that was a very shameful thing to be crucified. But God is looking at the big picture. He's looking at the purpose for this crucifixion. Something those two disciples on the road to Emmaus had not yet quite understood until Jesus went through the Old Testament checking out the verses that told the purpose of the crucifixion. And it wasn't to be putting Jesus to shame, but to be putting him in a position where he could pay for the sins of the world. So therefore... From a human point of view, that was a shameful thing Jesus was undergoing. But in verse 8, the Father who vindicates me is near. It was the Father who took Jesus to the cross. You know, a lot of people, when you ask the question, who is responsible for the death of Jesus, some will say, well, the Jews. Others will say, well, the Roman soldiers. Others will say the disciples, they didn't protect him. But the answer is, the one responsible for having Jesus go to the cross is none other than the Father himself. So Jesus says, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Wow. That, that reminds me of a word from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Normally, when somebody does shameful things to you, you want them to be as far away from you as possible. 
But Jesus had one purpose in becoming Savior, and that was to draw all people near to him. And remember, there were two Pharisees, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, they were members of the Supreme Court, so to speak, uh, of the Jews at that time, the Sanhedrin. And they came to faith. They drew near to Jesus as they listened to his words, and the Holy Spirit created faith in their hearts. Verse 9, referring again to that Lord God. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And of course, this is one of the things we talked about in the Bible study yesterday at a church. Namely, Jesus was sinless. Was he not? Was he ever guilty of doing sin? No. Yet God declared him to be sin. And he did that for the purpose of having Jesus able to die for the sins of the whole world. Had Jesus not been declared as sin, then his death would not have been as impressive and would not have had the consequences it had. Because declared to be sin, even though he never sinned, he was able to take the punishment of those who had sinned. Uh, By the way, the opposite is also true. There is no Christian who ever does a sinless good work. And yet, God declares them to be sinless. It's the very opposite of what happened to Jesus. He who was without sin was declared to be sin. We, who never do anything except sin, are declared to be righteous. It's called forensic justification. It's kind of a legal term. And it simply means like if you go to a court and you were arrested, for example, for going over the speed limit, and you ask the policeman, did you tune your um, item that says how fast I was going ahead of time? Did you check it out before you went out? He says, no. Well, the judge is going to throw your case out of the court. You're vindicated, even though you're guilty, because of a technicality. Now, it wasn't a technicality for which Jesus saved you. It was his death as the greatest sinner of the world. Nobody could declare him guilty. Even remember what one of the thieves said when the other thief was railing against Jesus. He said, look it, we deserve to be put to death because of our crime. But he is innocent of what he had done. And then he looks to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Boy, what a a word of faith. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's exactly what happens. So what we have here in Isaiah 50 as in much of the book of Isaiah, is it's talking about Jesus. Jesus, who has been given a tongue to teach others to sustain them with a word of comfort when they are weary. 
That, that's the purpose of the church. You should be weary over your sins, all of them, which exclude you from coming into the kingdom of God. But God has taken care of that problem. And God the Father sent his only begotten Son into the flesh as sin to take upon himself the punishment you and I deserved so that as a believer when we die, we will never receive the punishment we deserve for we have a God of mercy who does not give us what we deserve and he is also a God of grace who gives us that forgiveness which we do not deserve. Isaiah chapter 50, all about Jesus. On the next Long Gospel, with the help of Mark Smith, we're going to take a look at a hymn entitled, Praise the One Who Breaks the Darkness. What does that mean? It'll be on tomorrow's Law and Gospel. Till then, I'm Tom Baker. God bless. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.